0: David and I are were nice. talking before the programme. <laughs> yes, we
1: were indeed. What were we talking about, Jan? We've got a lot
0: of sex on the programme today. Sex
1: <laughs> reels, it's ugly head. Yes.
0: Oh, you're joking. Uh, here we go.
1: No, it's an old coward line, that one. Um Jan, how would you cope growing up in the isolation of a lighthouse post in colonial Australia? Cape Milden Hall takes on the challenge in her first book, I believe this is, of yours, Kate. It is. It's entitled Skylarking. So, Kate, welcome to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. And it's your first time on 3CR too. It is. Now, what a wonderful place. this is actually based on a true story. This,
2: How did you come across it? It is. So, we were... Uh... Camping. I was camping with my family in um, Jarvis Bay. Never been there before. We camp on the Victorian coast normally and we'd headed up because it was winter and it was freezing cold everywhere in Victoria. And right next to our campsite, there was a grave. And this grave belonged to a woman named Harriet Parker, a young woman, um, and who had lived on this part of the, the Cape during the 1880s and i became really interested in her story even more so when we went up to the ruins of the cape st george lighthouse which are ruined because it's actually in the wrong spot this this lighthouse was built in the wrong spot and so they ended up using it as target practice and and kind of blowing it up um, because it was uh, throwing out ships as they moved up and down the coast, still being able to see it there. So the the ruins of the lighthouse are there and and there was some information boards, which being a history junkie, I kind of always read. And there was information about this, this young woman, Harriet, and her best friend, Kate, who was the daughter of the lighthouse keeper. And the terrible uh, incident that occurred. And the terrible
1: incident that occurred, which you go into in your story. I do. Now, I mean, lighthouses were so essential back in 1880. I'm more familiar with the Cape Otway one. But what was fascinating about lighthouse life?
2: Well, I think... That idea of the the isolation of the coast, extraordinary things happened at this Cape St George lighthouse. Um, so many things that I knew when I, I decided I wanted to tell this story and explore the friendship of, of Kate and Harriet that I, I didn't. Um, I, I couldn't include everything that happened at Cape St George. There were children who, who fell off the, the cliffs and were eaten by sharks. There were people who died after being hit in the head by horses. Um, so I knew I couldn't include it all. But I have spent a lot of time at, at lighthouses, Um where we camp, there's a there's a beautiful lighthouse at Point Hicks. I've been to the the Cape Hotway lighthouse, Cape Shank. And there's something very romantic about lighthouses romantic, and life around them. but
1: dangerous also... And dangerous, absolutely. ...essential, because uh, with shipping coming through and by sale, um, they had to be guided in. But it's not so much... This story's not so much about the accident. The accident that uh, happens, which the reader can find out about, is... Uh, in the background because it's more about then the relationship between these two girls, Kate and Harriet. And Kate's the narrator of the story and early on I don't remember life before Harriet. History will tell you that there was a point in time when I was just Kate and Harriet just Harriet. But everyone on the Cape understands that from the day she arrived we became Kate and Harriet. Harriet and Kate. One did not fully exist without the other. Mm. So this is more a story about their relationship.
2: It is, and that was that was something I really did on purpose because when I started researching what really happened at Cape St George, all I could find everywhere was this same um, paragraph about the, the terrible accident that happened, and and um, these girls in in effect were reduced to this to this one event. And I thought, my goodness, I was actually camping with my best mate at the time when we were there, and I thought, what an extraordinary thing to have lived. On a, a you know a post like this this isolated post um, when you were just with your best friend and the actual the records what I did end up finding um, using the extraordinary trove um, resource the resource of the NLA was the newspaper the Shoalhaven Times, that gave a description of, of the incident, what happened, and it had Kate's voice in it, and, and she talked about what happened. Um, and everyone else, her father, um, Macphail himself, described Kate and Harriet as uh, as best friends, like sisters almost.
1: Well, you've mentioned the name Macphail now because we have two girls, uh, prepubescent, going into puberty, uh, besties, yep. as one might say today, uh, and it's their sexual awakening over this time. They're in isolation. One of the concerns their mothers have is finding a prospective partner. Absolutely. So, Harriet, at one stage, is sent off to Melbourne. She is. But Macphail arrives. Macphail loosened his stance and nodded a glint in his eye. I was taken aback by the fact that this man did not seem to place any particular regard on my father's position as head-keeper. Often when men from Bennett's River came by they appeared to bow their heads before father. It made him uneasy, but it seemed to me to keep order in the world. I hung outside the shed while MacPhail and father did their business, talking the foreign tongue of tools and lengths and what was required to fix the little hut. When they emerged, they shook hands and father turned to me. "'Still here? Are you waiting to show our visitor out?' He chuckled, and I blushed. "'Of course not.' I knew the red in my cheeks grew ever brighter. MacPhail glanced at me. "'No need. I'll be off.' He began to walk away. "'My thanks again.' He tipped his hat and strode towards the track that led down to the cove. He had not even asked my name. Mm-hmm. What's going on?
2: So Macphail, Macphail is an interesting character. And, you know, since since the book's release um, and listening to different readers' responses, some have said, oh, I wanted to kill him. And some have said, oh, he's such a spunk. I really liked Macphail. So it's interesting that he divides people. And um, Macphail is a... a based on a real character, so, so what I knew about this event that happened was that it involved Kate and Harriet, uh, it involved a gun and it involved a fisherman's hut. Uh, so they're kind of, you know, uh, the ingredients for pretty explosive storytelling and that's
1: why I followed this story. But Macphail becomes the sort of touchstone for Harriet and Kate to recognise their sexuality. I mean, Kate has acknowledged bumps and curves are now starting to appear so she's aware of her own... Changing physicality, but she's also aware then of Harriet.
2: Yeah, and Harriet's impact on others. And I think that that's a really interesting dynamic that I wanted to explore that idea that Kate and Harriet, you know, see themselves as two halves of a whole. They are in, in essence, the one person, they make up kind of one being, yet Kate knows that Harriet is older, Harriet is the beautiful one uh, and she really recognises that Harriet has this extraordinary um, impact on, on others, particularly Macphail. So that, that, yes, you've said sexual awakening and yes, absolutely that and as part of that, the power that the girls have in that and how, how they explore how to use that power.
1: Exploring how to use that power. that um, And Kate sort of wanted to know how it is that she hasn't got the same power that Harriet has. Mm,
2: absolutely. So
1: there's that awareness of how uh, they are growing, how they communicate through that physicality. But then you sort of take this relationship between Kate and Harriet further. Harriet has actually been sent to Melbourne because it, there is a need to find a suitable bow. A suitable man. Uh, at, because, you know, who, who is on at the lighthouse? Uh, thin pickings, so to speak. Harriet returns. Uh, And she took my face in both her hands and leaned right into me, and her face was so close I could see the high pink of her cheeks and the fine white hairs on her upper lip. Then she kissed me. Her lips were dry and a puff of her breath, a little sour but warm, went straight into my mouth, and I closed my eyes and inhaled and opened them again. She was still there... And as her lips moved, ever so gently across mine, I was pierced by a feeling so acute I gasped and felt her tongue for a moment, just a moment, flicker against the inside of my lower lip. And then she pulled away. That is what it is like, she said, smiling at me, as though it were the most natural thing in the world. That is what it is like to be kissed. What's going on?
2: So I think so interesting having things read back to you. It's uh, delightful too. Um, I think what was really important for me to um, to consider in this relationship too is that in that coming of age, in that understanding of power and desire and um, attraction to others, that really real um, moment I think when, when young women are exploring who they are and that Uh, edge that sometimes tips in friendship which is you know I love you I adore you and to know where desire begins and ends and I think it's really a period of exploration as well and I think what what struck me and what was one of the kind of touchstones for me as I was writing Skylarking was the idea that these women despite the social context being so entirely different um, were not unlike me and the women I grew up with and the girls I grew up with and not unlike the girls who are growing up today in the fact that all the same things happen to their bodies, the same kind of chemicals course through them. And so uh, there was a, an essence in what I wanted to do was to kind of reach back through time and say, this is kind of like
1: this mm. as well. Well, the other thing there, you talked about protocols, because one of the things you've got happening here is the last line in the book, Harriet, my Harriet my love. But if we go back into Victorian times, it was not unconventional for women to address each other this way. Absolutely. So we're touching on the potential for a lesbian relationship, but at the same time within the context of the times, yes. that sort of intimacy, not the kissing necessarily, but the sharing of friendships, yeah. were a very... Um, Well, recognised and acceptable.
2: Yeah, and and I think also that you know even in this is in Kate's um you know in Kate's voice, first person, and I think she she can't articulate what she's what she's feeling. There's no words to describe it. It's There's not a particular word that she would use to describe mm. how she's feeling. And I think that that's also sometimes the, the case now, that that interior world um, of young women going, I don't know exactly what this means, how I feel about yeah. this person or this person. So
1: interestingly enough, you've shifted the focus away from the actual accident onto that notion of that development of girls growing up, going through those stages, so to speak, and becoming aware of their sexuality. You've got another thread going through here, and that's the Indigenous presence going on. Um, Only very lightly, and um, I won't give too much away, but there's a form of resolution being offered here. But, I mean, you do make comment about how the Indigenous were treated.
2: I I think that's really important, and, you know, what I... What I set out to do was to um, recognise and acknowledge uh, the fact that there were Aboriginal people on this part of the Cape, of course, and and the historical documents that I that I used, the documents of Cape St George, did not include any of that information. Mm. Um, yet I knew they were there, so it was really important for me to both. Understand that I'm writing from first person, from a you know, 15 year old girl, white girl in 1880s. So to recognise that she has a particular worldview that I need to express at the same time as um, putting forward, um, you know, a, a, an alternative, my own views, uh, and an alternative that that sits more, more gently. Um, so I did. I in moving away from Jarvis Bay, I looked at. Um, some research in terms of the gunai Kurnai people in Far East Gippsland and the kind of timelines of, of how they would have been forcibly moved off their land at that point, often in missions. And, and so I made sure I kind of got that timeline right as mm.
1: well. But you've also made mention um, in uh, the thanks you've written at the end of the Book um, the protocols for producing Indigenous Australian writing and writing about Indigenous Australia resource uh, from the Australia Council and the Australian Society of Authors. Yeah,
2: really important. And, and what I would suggest now, I learnt an enormous amount um, in doing this this part of the work. And I think the key the key thing is consultation as well with um, Aboriginal people if if you're going to kind of um, Attempt this kind of thing in your work, which I think is really important, particularly in Australian historical work. Um, and I and I learnt a lot from from reading those. Um, Anita Heiss is part of writing those um, resources, and I and I encourage others who are thinking of uh, attempting the same kind of work to to look at those resources first and get an understanding of what it is they need to do when they're addressing that kind of um,
1: work. We've got about time for one more quick question, and that is the opening of the book. Kate and Harriet standing on the precipice of the cliff and you can actually feel the tension, but it's a metaphor, really.
2: It is. It is. And isn't that the moment that we all feel? You know, at that, particularly at that, t- that period in our lives, that coming of age of standing on the edge of the cliff, I think that's what lighthouses are about, being on the edge of, you know, between two things, that kind of liminal space as well. So. And,
1: and the precipice of their own sexuality. So, look, Kate, thank you very much for coming in today. The book is Skylarking, the author Kate Mildenhall and the publisher Black Ink Books. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Well, I've got a brother and sister leave their country home for the big smoke. One goes to university and the other grows up in the school of life. So you think you've heard the story before? But Jacinta Halloran has put twists and turns into this most readable and entertaining, the science of appearances. Welcome back, Jacinta.
3: Thanks, Jan. It's lovely to be here. Oh, thank you. Dominic and Mary, the brother and sister, but they're a bit more than that. Well, they're twins. Mm. I'm sorry to say. I mean, twins are a little bit of a cliche, but uh, I hope that I have tried to subvert that a little bit, uh, in that they are non-identical twins. So, in fact, really like brother and sister in terms of their genetic material. But um, but the fact that they're born obviously at the same time and that they're close in age, well, very close in age, two minutes apart or something, uh, means they that they in, in, in temperament. Well, no. As, as we say, as I say in the prologue, they're chalk and cheese, or mm, night, and day. night and day. Night and day, they prefer because Mary doesn't like getting up in the morning, so she <laughs> takes night, and Dominic takes day because he's very studious and conscientious. So,
0: whereabouts are they getting up, and when?
3: Well, the novel's set post Second World War in Country Victoria. It opens there, and uh, they so it opens at. It opens in 1947, I think it is. Now I can't even remember. 46, oh, it was 647 um, with the sudden death of their father, and the twins are. Um yes, yeah, on the cusp of puberty themselves. They're age thirteen. And Kitan, what's Kiton like? Is there a class divide in Kiton? Well, Kinton. I, I have spent time in Kiton recently and I um it is a very charming place now mm. with beautiful coffee and great food and the all the old buildings in Piper Street have all been renovated and and wonderful. But uh, the Kiton of the nineteen fifties that I write about or post war, Second World War, late forties, early fifties is a fairly um, depressed or repressed type of environment. And the class war is, yes, it's a little bit of class war, mm. I suppose, between certainly born out in Mary and Dominic's uh, life between them um, with their father who's dead and so they're fairly impoverished and uh, and their friend, Robbie, the doctor's son, who ends up playing a big role in mm. both of their lives, actually. What about religious divisions? Yes, religious divisions. It's funny to talk about it now, but in those days, um, the Catholic Protestant divide mm-hmm. was the Mm-mm. the biggest divide you could <laughs> sort of ever imagine in this very, you know, white Australia that uh, we remember of that time. And so that plays into the into the story a little bit too, and that the Catholics of the town felt a little bit like the underdogs. Well, you
0: know, when when they cricket balls and bats were stolen. This is a lovely piece of writing. Um, they all blamed the prodies. Right. and how to get them back, how to get money back to buy some more. They had a rabbit drive.
3: Look, that sounded the most incredible thing. Did it really happen? It did really happen. Uh, you know, the internet's an amazing resource, and you can search and surf wherever you want to. And I found video footage of of these rabbit drives where people would, Uh, It was often during the Depression, uh, but even later than that, people would hunt rabbits and sell the skins and the meat for money. And so people would get in a huge crowd with anything that would make a noise, you know, a tin can or a stick and or something, and they'd they'd just make this noise and drive these rabbits into a corner and uh, trap them, and then they'd basically bludgeon them to death. It was such a horrific image that I really wanted to write about it in the book um, and uh, yes it did happen in Kyneton actually too mm. they they really did do that to raise funds for I think for actually for sporting equipment at one of the schools. Well,
0: Dominic didn't want to take part in any of
3: this but his mother
0: said look if you don't go it, it, if, if you don't turn up it'll be you or the rabbits that are yeah. gonna be picked on yeah so he goes with the flow. Now, as you said, 1947, Dominic is 13, his father dies. And it's Dr. Cameron who has been at their birth of these twins and had to write the death certificate for their father. He made it the best deed he did for the day. Mm. Mm. Their father, tell us a bit about him.
3: Well, the father is quite a a shadowy figure within the narrative. Uh, he's a school teacher actually, so he's so he's actually um, someone who's been educated himself and he believes in education for his children, but because of the situation in, in that when he dies there's no, there's no salary, there's no home, because the, the house that they lived in had actually been let to them by the school. Um, they are sort of forced into poverty, but but um, he remains throughout the narrative a fairly shadowy, somewhat, s- not stern perhaps, but removed from the children. Obviously benignly interested in them, but really not spending a lot of time or energy with them. And I think that was probably pretty typical of Fathers of the Day, I would have to say. Uh, and also we sense that there's a lot of tension between mm. the mother and the father. Their relationship is is fairly strained and, and severe. And or you know, we subsequently learn the reasons for that. So there are family secrets that are discovered. It, it, Jacinta Halloran has given the father
0: a beautiful little clip: a newspaper and necktie father. And I think that sums it up beautifully. Well,
3: that's Mary's view of him, yes. Um, and so, uh, yeah, as she said, out of because he died, the poverty. There's she
0: leaves school. She's got to find some work. This is Mary, and uh, she finds a cleaning job at the Cameron's house. You know, the Cameron's thinking that or Mrs. Cameron thinking she's doing the right thing, and of course, Mary spends more time looking at the artwork on the wall than doing any clearing cleaning at all.
3: And um, Robert, what does what – does, uh, uh, where's Robert this time? Where's their son? Yes, well, Robert is – well, Robbie Cameron's the doctor's son, obviously, and he's also – Mary's been, you know, infatuated mm. with him infatuated. for many years. He's away at boarding school at a very posh school in Melbourne. We don't actually ever name it. Uh, I'll leave that up to the readers. Deductive skills to work <laughs> out which school it is. It's on St Kilda Road. Um <laughs> And uh, so she she imagines, while she's back in Kite and cleaning at the Cameron's house, she's creeping into Robbie's bedroom and smelling, you know, his yeah. pillow and rifling through his drawers and looking at his cricket jumper that she remembers he'd worn. And and remembering how he rubbed the ball on his trousers and it left mm, a red streak. A bit of a yeah. And she yeah. too
0: said to her best friend, uh, Joan Corrigan, what about, you know, we, we try kissing to practice. <laughs> Joan was not impressed through right. that. <laughs> yeah, so Mary's and, uh,
3: very sexually, mm. Mm. well, she's, she's interested. She's motivated, yes.
0: Now, Dominic also has to leave school. What work does he find?
3: Dominic, uh, well, few, you know, work, jobs are few and far between in this fairly repressed sort of time mm. period. And so he actually ends up getting a job as a postboy or a deliverer of letters for the post office, which is actually not the Kyneton post office. It's another post office <laughs> in another town, Romsey, which is a fair distance a fair away.
0: distance, yes. And so
3: he is. rides his bike there. And, uh, and 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 through that time, he actually realises how much he loves – well, he doesn't really like the hills as he rides in the rain, but he loves sort of the physical landscape and he thinks about perhaps having a farm his own, of his own and growing crops and he's, he's always got a very sort of scientific interest in things, fairly analytical, so he starts to think about which crops he'd grow and mm-hmm. how strong they'd be and how they'd be better than other people's and this is all obviously a clue to him uh, – or his sort of nascent interest in genetics, which he then later explores at university. Now, mm. crop genetics, genetics, I should say. Yeah.
0: this is because this, this is a brand new field. So he's, off, he's in Melbourne doing genetics, studying genetics, um, and you know one of the students says to the lecturer, "But aren't we playing God, messing about with nature?" And the professor Kingsley, nature plays God with itself all the time. We call it natural selection. And here we have uh, Dominic, who's really taken up with all of this um, genetic study and the whole science of it. But it's just been luck and the kindness of strangers that's got him there.
3: Absolutely, yes. Mm. He um, he he gets a. Um, oh, don't tell. Oh, you don't want no, to tell. Don't oh, don't tell. Okay, that. well. And we also know that Mary. Suffice to say, people look after him, yeah. Yes.
0: And we also know that Mary has to leave Kiton. She runs away. She leaves a mother and a brother with no word of where she's going or why she's left, or, you know, she tries to hint at it, but. Uh, and finally, it's the sea that draws her. It's in Kilda. Music, the art world, the freedom and sex mm. but but not in the way a homeless girl in St Kilda bring to mind you've given Mary quite a lot of sexual knowledge more than just what she learned from the, the pamphlet that she got from the Modest box <laughs> she
3: I love this tell us how she gets condoms oh okay well of course uh Mary often gets her own way and so she does end up you know, um, having a relationship of sorts with Robbie Cameron. She bowls up to school and sort of waits at the gates till he he comes down and finds her, and they do end up having a sexual relationship. Um, but because he's but son of the doctor... Yes, <laughs> he, because he's the son of the doctor, he's actually... You know, Robbie has many faults, but one of his strengths is that he does actually look after, you know, the uh, the contraception side of things, so he has condoms. Um, and uh, And then Mary... You know, Mary actually starts to explore explore her sexuality with other people, and she actually steals condoms from Robbie's box to <laughs> cover herself, um, which is obviously very a very healthy thing to do.
0: Mm. So Mary gets involved in the arty world, and you have references here to Joy Hester, and she also makes friends with a very strong female sculptor, Joyce, and it's 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 a very it's a very understanding thing, but even when she does become an artist model she's there for the art
3: yes well she you know Mary does has have the habit of you know taking the opportunities as they arise she's a very spontaneous sensual person and uh, she ends up being an artist model and that's her mm, foot in the door to become middle. an artist but her relationship with Joyce is very important because Joyce is a female artist who is very you know very um, Exacting and very focused on her career as an artist. And that's very important to Mary because otherwise she's surrounded by men who perhaps don't take her seriously. Well, um, Dom at Melbourne Uni is also mixing with a very different crowd, one of which is Hannah, daughter of... um, Oh, she's Jewish? She's German-Jewish. She's a refugee herself. She came out to Australia when she was very young. And she gets
0: very cross when... um Dom comes to her and and tells her about eugenics.
3: Yes, eugenics, Selective
0: breeding, Mm. which, oh, you know, this brings out a whole other element in the book because Dom also comes across Robert Cameron and he hints that there's something in the twins' background, genetic background, that they have to know about. Mm. Oh, all of this. Look, all through the book is divided up in three parts, and very clever scientific terms. We have punctuated equilibrium, that's when the family is all broken up and then drift and adaption back at, in Melbourne, where they're learning about themselves, and homeostasis.
3: Yes, well, they're, they're population theories of genetics, but don't ask me to explain them. <laughs> I've just put them in because I liked the terms. I look... And they do link, to, you know, vaguely link to the themes oh, within those do. those parts.
0: I love the end of it. You know, they're both in their very different career paths in science and in art, but they're both doing something. They're both building either an arty bit or a, a double helix chromosome. And I thought yeah. that was a very clever end, yes. that, you know, they're still together. Well,
3: I'm glad you picked up the sort of the spatial uh, picture of that because, yes, they're both in some way. And
0: we get this snapshot of 1950s Melbourne. Jean, uh, Jean Lee, the last woman to hang in Melbourne. There's protests about her and, I, and written protests about
3: boys doing Nasho for Korea. Yes, it was, I didn't it was important it. at that time, yes. People, young people were thinking about that, whether they'd be called up for Nasho, yeah. Mm, National big Chief
0: Little Wolf doing the rounds with his Indian Deathlock. Oh, bits I remember, and the fire at Wilson Hall, which uh, it, you know, it burnt and did incredible damage.
2: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.